0: It's just Patagonia so Radio and we will here on a Monday, and as usual Mondays are one to being a one of those kind of days. So we are a little bit late to start, but you know we are. But uh, but we're here. the chat and let you guys know that hey this is a call in this is a live show. The live show means that yes you can participate. So guess the phone number is seven one 4, four two five one four five. Or if you're just too shy, you definitely take a look at the chat, just down below the information about the show. And you know, you can give us your comments or questions. Chat area there as well. You'll be a part of the show. So, city space go the house. to be space. house. I'm going to to be something space
1: right Baby Boomers, who got it all started back in 69, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily, they got it started. It was our parents who got it started. But it was the Baby Boomers who kept feeding it and being excited about um, everything that was going on. Um, <coughs> was to go. There. Okay. okay. So, but... The interesting thing is that where government has left off, um, just like back in the day in history, where government leaves off, private enterprise picks up. And one of the, the probably the thing that makes my message so different from most everybody else, you've got you've got the Mars Society talking about Mars Direct. Yeah, let's push to Mars with two or three people, put them on the moon and bring them home, or put them on Mars and bring them home. Um, the sheer expense of that deal with chemical rocketry and all of that stuff is, is so huge, probably it's probably not going to support well, that.
0: Well, yeah, don't they um, learn anything from science fiction? <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I know I've read at least a couple books government. about this. Yeah, I know. And it, see, this, that's just it. They-
1: first, your first issue is you're forgetting government never – Learns. Period. First, they're they're
0: really you know almost all to the point of not sending anybody anywhere. Where uh, you know they they get too worried about somebody getting hurt. Now they want to just stick somebody on the on Mars. I mean, hello, that's kind of going on to whole total <coughs> opposite spectrum here.
1: The problem is not that the leaders that are there can't lead. Okay, <laughs> they have that capacity. We would never say that. The problem is that their budget, particularly NASA's, oh, yeah. is nowhere near what it needs to be to put a person on Mars, or two people on Mars, mm-hmm. and bring them home. And again, that's the assumption following President statement many ago. <laughs> The problem is that that's not how you do the principle of opening a frontier. We can look back in history to the uh, you can go back to Australia and Botany Bay. Started out as a penal colony. The people mm-hmm. were sent here not to go home. They were not going home. Right. This was a one-way trip. When you look at the Pilgrims and most of the settlers and immigrants that came from Europe to the Americas, that was a one-way trip. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: Jamestown went through two failures before the third try actually succeeded.
0: Yeah. yeah they lost. They
1: Lost a lot of people. a lot of people,
0: most of them. And when when
1: the supply ship arrived on that third attempt for Jamestown, 80% of the people were already dead. Yeah. They were practically done. But they toughed it out. The supply ship arrived, you know, that that nick of the time saving, you know, literally barely surviving. And, you know, I don't know if you saw the news, but apparently they've unearthed the skull from Jamestown. Of a 14-year-old girl with cut marks on her skull that suggests that Jamestown may have evolved into cannibalism uh, before that final supply ship arrived. So, we are humans. (laughs) And this just points that out. Yeah,
0: yeah, and you never know. Mm -hmm. know, Because uh, when the tote going to tough, we don't care how tough tough the meat is.
1: No, we don't. (laughs) We'll eat it. Meat is meat. Meat is meat. And there are all sorts of other things that we can eat, the veggies and plants and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But you got to have edible plants to be able to eat them.
0: Right.
1: You've got to have crops. You've got yeah. to have good weather for crops on earth and, yeah. and things like that.
0: Although I hear that we so, taste like chicken.
1: Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> I haven't had the opportunity to take a bite. So
0: well, you bite. At least not, to, but that's not
1: to chew and swallow. Yeah, yeah if you see how chew a, and swallow it. Different things like that. <laughs> but let's let's bring everybody up to date a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I've said there's a lot for a lot that's been happening and let's just bring everybody up to date real quick there have been uh, just to let you know since I'm advocating private citizens going to space there have already been seven different space tourists visit the International Space Station okay. <coughs> and these the very first one Dennis Tito from 2001 and in fact it's interesting to note that Mr. Tito himself will be at a summit this uh, this weekend on the 5th, 5th, and 6th in Washington, D.C. They're going to be talking about what is involved in going to Mars. Uh, Mr. Tito is actually funding um, the uh, Mars, I think it's Mars One program, or is it Mars, Mars Inspiration? Is that, Inspiration fly, Mars.
0: is that the flyby one?
1: No. Okay. Dennis Tito's one is Inspiration Mars, I believe, which is to actually go one-way trip land and stay there, which I think is admirable.
0: It's admirable, but it's a little early.
1: I don't know that it's early. I, I think that the approach is lacking in a few details, but we'll, we'll come back to that after a while. Some other information, you know, we talk about the space station as being an international space station, but I don't think people realize just how international an effort this is. You've got four nations that send cargo up to the ISS on a periodic basis. Europe has sent three automated transfer vehicles. Japan has sent up the <coughs> Konotori transfer vehicle, and the U.S. has already, just in this past year and a half, sent up three Dragons from SpaceX, a private company actually sending cargo up. And the Russians have been spending, sending Progress craft and other uh, Soyuz craft with cargo in them uh, for since. The early days of the space station, so the Russians have really been doing a lot of a lot of work for us. In addition, um, SpaceX's original mission—they've actually sent four missions that docked with the ISS. The very first one, over a year ago, was the test mission. It did deliver cargo, but it was a very small amount and just for the test purposes. And, but they've had four four missions overall, um, and. <coughs> Their next mission, do I believe, in the spring of next year, is going to have a new thing happening on that mission. SpaceX is going to attempt the recovery of the booster by having its engines fire after reentry and land in the ocean and see if they can get that um, landing process worked out. Um, mm-hmm. That stands to... Uh, reduce potential launch launch costs a tremendous amount right there. Now, they've also um, estimated delivery of their Falcon Heavy booster uh, before 2020. We're looking at, uh, in January of this year, the U.S. Department of Defense allowed the Air Force to purchase launch services from companies other than United Launch Alliance, which has been a monopoly for many years now. Um, (coughs) Launch costs from United Launch Alliance or about $240 million per launch, give or take. Falcon 9 has published their average launch costs on the order of $60 million for their Falcon 9 and an estimated under $120 million for the Falcon Heavy when it becomes available. Um, And those are just uh, a few of the items. In addition, Bigelow Aerospace, I've talked about this before, Mm -hmm. launched uh, two uh, habitat prototypes that are still functioning and still airtight, in orbit since 06 and 07 of this year. China actually (coughs) just recently sent a couple astronauts up to their uh, space station. Their first module was put up just this past year. Um, (coughs) In upcoming news, uh, Excalibur Almas, this is a company based in the British Isles on the Isle of Man, they purchased several pieces of equipment from the Russians, two of which are the Almas... Units which were designed and built as part of the MIR space station. Hmm. Now, those two units are planned to be part of what's called a lunar cycler. We'll be talking about that just in a little bit, because um, that's going to be real important. Buzz Aldrin has done the math for what's called a Mars cycler, and I'll be explaining that in a little bit more detail. And then I talked about the Humans to Mars Summit that uh, is meeting in Washington this weekend with Dennis Tito. NASA will be there, among others, uh, to be part of that summit. (coughs) Now, I mentioned I'd be talking a little bit more about a Mars cycler, or a a cyclocraft. Mm -hmm. But before that, let's talk about what Mission Zero is. Yeah. Let's hear about
0: that.
1: In all of the missions that governments have done to date, when we look at uh re-science missions, uh, the satellites that have gone up have a very direct, very specific science mission. They've take on, taken on the order of five to uh, ten years to prepare, build the equipment, ultimately, and get the launch up and on its way. The, then the manned missions usually take between five and ten years to develop uh, prior to launch. And almost every manned mission, in fact, all the manned missions, are about sending them, the personnel to their destination and bringing them home safely. Again, the basis of Kennedy's statement, so many forty-five, what almost fifty years ago now, um, and so actually I think it is fifty years. It was sixty-three, I think. Um, yeah. Well. No. No, he
0: died in sixty-three.
1: He died in sixty-three, so yeah. it's, so it's been more than that. So, but anyway, <coughs> what mission zero is is the idea of not sending people up where they've trained 10 years to do specific group of items and then come home. Mission Zero is a collection of missions whose sole purpose is to establish the infrastructure for settlement. It's not about science although we will do science it's not about going spending two weeks and coming back it's not about all of the technology that nasa and all of the all people try and, and get involved this is mission 0 is the bare bones collection of missions that it will take to establish air food water and habitat at our target location now That means that we don't take a lot of the gleaming technology that we expect to, that we've seen on the ISS, that we've seen in the moon missions, that we saw on Mir. Um, (coughs) What we do take is we take um, the supplies, much like the pilgrims brought over with them, much like the American settlers carried with them in their wagons and hand carts when they settled the Midwest and the Far West, you, you didn't carry an entire home on your back. No. you just couldn't
0: that'd be weird
1: um <laughs> in trying to carry that, you would never make your destination, and that is the problem that we have with current uh focuses in the manned mission programs, all of them mm-hmm. about to guarantee survival. And in that guarantee, you end up with redundancies on redundancies on redundancies instead of trusting your people to be able to solve the problems and survive through to their goal. I
0: was thinking that, you know, they definitely would not be able to have hoarders
1: on the moon. I mean, you,
0: you, you need to be bare minimum of what you need.
1: Exactly. And, and the thing is, if we're going to move into the frontier of this space, or realistically, the frontier that is the sea, They both require the same effort. You you cannot start opening this kind of a frontier with all of the gleaming tools that we expect to be there from our technological society. You have to open a frontier as a frontier, whether it be under the sea or whether it be in space. You take the minimum materials that you need to survive. You don't need cable TV. You don't need a cell phone. Yes, you need a laptop, a computer to be able to make your note taking, to make your observations, to make many tests and things like this compact. That's the benefit that it serves. But you don't need a computerized rover. You can take a pedal car. Four wheels out of out of uh, a, a mesh spongy type metal that will survive the the stuff on, on the surface of the moon or Mars, and you put a basic seat on it, you put a simple frame that can carry 100 pounds, and you pedal the doggone thing. Yes, you're going to use a little bit more air and temperature control in your spacesuit, but you plan for that and you do it in sections. Does a farmer go out on his farm and expect to plow the whole thing in one day? No. 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 He'll, he spends nearly a month in some cases getting those fields on his farm plowed in preparation he does it a little bit at a time Mm. he works. he may work from sunset to uh, sunrise to sunset but he's still parceling out the work and this is what we need to take in our approach to setting up the infrastructure that will serve as the foundation for all of the things that we want to do when we settle the moon Mars and space and the asteroids Now, the downside is, is that we can't take a mission zero paradigm approach when looking at settling space itself. If you're going to put a habitat in space, like many of the space stations, the Bernal Sphere, the, the Dyson Sphere, or, or not the Dyson Sphere, that's, that's way bigger, <laughs> but the Bernal Sphere, the uh, O'Neill Cylinders, uh, even the ISS, you have to. Have all of that gleaming technology in place, in space itself. Your ship, your habitat in space has to have all of those tools because you've got nothing to work with. When we're looking at... So they
0: have to be really
1: uh, these people who we drop on the moon. Or Mars.
0: Or Mars. Are going to need to be people who think about how to get around something, how to make something out of something else.
1: Absolutely. And one of the challenges that we face is, is that NASA's history, and, and Russia's, to give them credit as well, has been to think through with thought experiments, with physical experiments in vacuum chambers, with the um, uh, aircraft uh, anti-gravity training that they do. Um, and this stuff is all really expensive, and it's gotten them as far as I believe we can go, in understanding what it's like to live and work in the low-gravity situations and lack of air situations that we're going to find not only on the moon but on Mars and other planets or moons that we may visit. You know, there's, there's Phobos on, uh, uh, as, uh, at Mars. You've got a couple of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn that are promising as potential landing sites, not to mention uh, mining sites. So if we're going to move into these environments, we need to have people, as you say, being capable of solving the challenges that they face Mm -hmm. on the moon. You've got to be willing to look and say, okay, you've got dust there. We can't recreate that dust here. We can get some, some, some approximations. But we can't create a habitat here that's a lunar environment. You just can't do that here. You'll always be missing something, whether it's the low gravity, whether it's the, the, va- the level of vacuum you're looking for, whether it's the gravity that you're looking at that's going to make the dust behave a certain way. You cannot reproduce that here to be able to learn and, and develop the training to handle those circumstances you're going to find there. Mars gravity is much better. And the dust on Mars, while it's wind blown, where it isn't on the moon, the wind blown dust on Mars is even worse. It's driven by, in some cases, hurricane force winds. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so they <clears> they need to know, uh, you know, the idea is that NASA's already paved the way for things that that, that the common man's going to need to know, uh, like how te- to deal with...
1: They've dealt with yeah. developing the technology that gives us the the cocoon that we need to get there.
0: Also, they've done the research, you know, what mm-hmm. the, the moon does made of... What kind of pa- uh, problems would that cause for for us as humans uh, living in that kind of environment? Right. So uh, they've now gotten to the point where they're they're getting around some things that they hadn't anticipated, uh, and they've learned a lot
1: over the years. they learned a lot. But it's the time Apollo, Apollo has taught us a it. lot about dealing with that dust and what we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Apollo astronauts, when they came in to the LAM after being doing their EVAs ran into problems with the dust when they took off their spacesuits and pressurized the lamp. The dust got everywhere and created havoc in a lot of places. Right. Uh, So NASA has been developing other solutions like a suit dock, which never comes inside the station. You actually climb into the suit. It hangs on the outside of your unit, and you climb in and out. Then you detach it from your habitat unit or rover or whatever the case may be. It's a wonderful idea. I think it makes a lot of sense it's expensive.
0: What do you mean by detaching? I mean there's
1: Well it's, it's... a suit a, a spacesuit dock that's equipped with a docking mechanism, uh let's say you have a rover on the moon. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's kinda like a mini motor home. Well at the back doors of your mini motor home rover, you have two spacesuits permanently attached to the outside of the, the unit. Now inside the habitat <laughs> inside the rover there's a there's a hatch. And through that hatch, you climb into the spacesuit, you close the hatch, seal it, and then you you hit a couple of buttons, and it detaches from the rover so that you can do your EVA. You walk around, do the things you need to do, and then when you go back, you simply position yourself back up into that hatch space again, seal it, reconnect and seal to the rover, and then you open the hatch and climb back out. And... Getting in and out of these is much easier than getting in and out of current spacesuits, because you're sitting there. Um,
0: right, but what I was asking is—is is, is this, uh, for instance, do they, once they, they get out of their <coughs> suit, that's outside, outside
1: suit, does that stay there? Yeah, it stays outside oh, the okay. unit. Stay, so they just hook
0: it up again, and then it stays yeah, outside. Okay. It
1: stays out, so it's permanently attached
0: when they're not in Kind of
1: like, kind, kind like it. your wet shoes. Kind of like wet shoes, yeah. You know. Glashes. Yeah, galoshes. <laughs> you leave them yeah. in the environment.
0: Yeah, glosses. And that keeps. Yeah. yeah. That.
1: It, it, it's it's reminiscent of galoshes. Mm-hmm. Um
0: But for those who don't live in the snow, uh, the glashes went over top of your shoes. So that way your shoes wouldn't get wet in the snow, and you leave your galoshes outside, or, or
1: you know, they're a enjoy. little taller than ankle boots. Yeah, they're rubber. You just kind of slip them right on, and then and generally you're supposed to be able to slip them right off. Right, they, and they and never they come some, off as easy. No, because <laughs> they're wet and spongy. <laughs> well, stick to your shoes. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, you know, and and the thing to remember is when we look at the difference between these missions. And mission zero. Another thing that's different about mission zero is is that um, with mission zero, we're looking at a different type of spacesuit. Mm-hmm. The current spacesuit is designed to achieve at least um, between six and eight hours time outside the habitat.
0: Right. You said that to me once and. And that's because that's all the air you can get into the cancers? Well it's it's
1: it's a it's a suit designed around a lot of compromises. Hmm. Um you they now have rebreathers in them uh, much like scuba divers can use hmm. that recycle the air, but you still have other problems. You've you've got body waste, you've got sweat, you've got all the things that build up over an eight hour period when you're working. Plus with a spacesuit, the current design of spacesuits, these things are Thick. And when you're trying to work and move around in these, even in a weightless environment, it takes uh, training. It takes a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. Sure and <clears throat> because they do not bend easy. If uh, For some people who may remember seeing the videos of the Apollo astronauts on the moon, you ended up hopping. <laughs> and if you tried to, to bend over or pick up something off the ground, you ended up leaning over straight legged almost and grabbing it while you're holding on to something else, pull yourself back up. I mean, getting up off of the ground yeah. was demonstrated as being actually, I mean, it was funny. Yeah, but it was fun. it was particularly difficult yeah. um, to get up off the ground because of the fact that the suits are so stiff. Because they're like, I mean, it's it's like a balloon. You know, you've seen the cartoons and mm-hmm. the guy gets blowed up with a bunch of air and his arms get stuck after a certain point. his you're stuck and you floating around a room I about I think, was thinking, you know, thinking
0: this is, and here we did all this just so that we could have moon shoes. That's <laughs> <laughs> the things that let us hop around.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that
0: was a big thing back when it I was a kid.
1: You know, and now, you've got, now they've taken that idea uh-huh. and bridged it with regular walking shoes. Right. You got springs on them. The springs are built in. The springs are visible. You got sho- shoes that light sho- up. I haven't
0: seen shoes You've with got... spring, springs in them. That's
1: they're yeah they're out there. They're expensive really? as all get out. Oh yeah. Well, I
0: seen ones with rollers on it, and yeah. I always thought that was the beginning of the, the the end for children. Yeah. Yeah. They can't walk anymore. They have to have little bla- little uh,
1: oh yeah rolls on their shoes. Yeah. Uh-huh. There you go. So uh, one more thing that makes kids be in a hurry all the time. But let's get let's, let's, yeah so let's let's get back to talking about what mission zero is. Okay. Mission zero starts out by saying first off you need more than th- two or three people. Okay. Oh okay. Well, yeah. I, you you've got to have enough people first of all to be able to work in shifts, mm-hmm. to be able to share the load. Yeah, it's like a normal business. It's it's exactly like a
0: business. You want you want things to be produced on a constant basis. And so you're going to need shifts, just like a normal corporation that's right, factory.
1: but with more people, it also requires um it requires it's going to require additional supplies mm. and materials that have got to be carried and It's because of this reconstruction of the mission parameters that it becomes clear that you've got to completely rethink the way that settlement missions have to work. Um, you don't have the Delta V allowances. And for those that don't know what I mean by Delta V allowances, it's it's the fuel, it's the space on the ship, it's all the stuff that goes into being able to lift the supplies, the personnel, the tools, the things that they're going to need to make a habitat survivable on the moon, within a period that you can generate your first crops, and which is I, important, which is important. The the crops is is the key, um, and when I I started looking at there there have been several proposals and in, and in the uh, station in Antarctica, NASA actually has a hydroponics lab down there. That has been for a few years now producing a lot of the food that they need down there, at least the vegetables and stuff. And it it does really well. It's a very high-tech, very energy-intensive system. And they've they've tweaked it over the years. It's not as bad as when it was first started. But it's very energy-intensive. It's very man-hour-intensive. It's constantly being tweaked and adjusted
0: okay. so 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 here's my question on it. If it's energy-intensive, how are we going to... Be able to uh, do the same thing on the. Moon.
1: We can't. We can't do. We yeah. can't do. Uh, traditionally, technology-based hydroponics on Mars either. Okay. Because we can't transport that much equipment to construct an energy source to provide the long-term needs that it's going to have. So
0: we need to really. Spend more time on those specific things.
1: No. we've at, at the point we're at right now, the technology that we have, the, the biggest thing is is, one, it weighs a lot, and two, it's got to be constructed, and three, it's expensive to buy. Okay. All right? Right. Now, there is this point that in all missions you have to compromise. Okay? Right. And while I don't think that trying to carry... The, the number of solar panels that we would need to provide uh, lighting and, and pumps and electricity and all the stuff that would be needed for a dedicated hydroponics farm on the moon, it's just not practical. It becomes a money pit for energy.
0: Don't they have one of those out in um, <clears throat> North Phoenix?
1: A hydroponics lab? Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. The SU has um some hydroponics and aquaponics labs in the valley. Okay. Uh they're much smaller. Oh yeah. Uh, but they're yeah, they. they're here. They have the benefit they're in an, they're in a, a natural um biosphere of the earth. Uh they can fan a lot of the the, the thing is is that when working with high technology for which hydroponics is. Mm-hmm. There's no soil. Right. There is no soil. This stuff, you've got pumps for the water. Mm -hmm. You have to add nutrients to the water. Hydroponics requires that you mix your water yourself. You must add the nutrients, which is a collection of chemicals and minerals, to feed the plants. That is very, very, very labor and energy intensive. And you're not going to have enough people to man it on either the moon or Mars for the intensity that it takes. You've got to be able to treat this in a sense, and in the mission Zeroes paradigm, we look at this, and, we, and, and I said, okay, how do we compromise this? There's technology there. There has to be. But what if we look at, instead of we looking at hy- hydroponics, let's look at aquaponics. Okay. Now, the difference between hydroponics and aquaponics is is that aquaponics isn't near as energy-dependent, nor is it near as energy-dependent okay. or, or labor-intensive. And why? The reason why is because it, it's built around the principle of a biome. Oh. Now, a biome is our, our biosphere. It's the plants. It's the animals. It's the insects. It's the people. It's the air we breathe, and it's the weather patterns and so forth. Now, a lot of this we can incorporate into a habitat on the moon, but some of the basics we can. Okay. Now, <coughs> to make a biome work, NASA demonstrated back in the 80s they could take a person and a bunch of plants, put them into a closed system, and pump the air back and forth, and that the man could provide enough CO2 for the plants to thrive as long as they had water and, and food. Yeah. And then the plants could provide enough air and the food from the plant systems that the man could live off the air and the plants.
0: That's just plain freaky. Why? Well, it's the whole circle life thing. Yes. Right in front of you. Absolutely. That, you know, the man and and plants are, are synchronized to help each other.
1: Is that, well, right. I mean, that's how we've evolved on this planet. Why shouldn't we take advantage of that cycle? Sure. But here's the catch. When the scientists tried to take that biom- biomic experiment from NASA back in the 80s mm-hmm. and scale it up to the huge Biosphere 2 experiment, oh, yeah. while it was generally successful, they learned loads of stuff about it. But the very technology they built into that system got in the way. Mm. And the single biggest issue the Biosphere 2 faced was the concrete floor. The concrete floor wasn't completely cured when they sealed the Biosphere. As a result, that concrete was sucking oxygen out of the atmosphere at a yeah. rate that they couldn't replenish with the plants doing what they do. Cuz <laughs> it's not an oxygen carbon dioxide cycle yeah, right. in the concrete.
0: Exactly.
1: So, it's and
0: a man-made item instead of it's
1: a-, a man-made item. Okay. And there were other things that contribute to issues within the biosphere, but that was probably one of the single greatest ones that really impacted Everything, and it threw all of the math off for everything else, be it the plants, be it the animals they're trying to do, the water content its its ability to recycle the air and process uh, moisture and so forth. Everything was thrown off because of that concrete shell base, hmm. and the purpose of the concrete was intended to seal the biosphere so they could get accurate data when in fact
0: it did the opposite it
1: did exactly the opposite yeah. it. Created Now, so, but what Mission Zero does is it takes a completely different idea. It says, okay, we're going to do a biome. A bio. We want to take that science that they learned about the biosphere from the 80s. But we only want to make it a little bigger. We don't want to try and, and simulate all of the various uh, things. We need to to simulate, we need to build just enough to give us that toehold so that over time we'll be able to incorporate some of the other aspects of our environment. We know that we can create a fairly closed ecological system. And there are some things that we can manage as humans within that environment. We can manage airflow. We can throw a fan or two in the place to get the air to circulate. Okay, we can get, um, we can use our lighting. And here's the thing about a habitat in space. People and technology generate heat. Right. They generate a lot of heat. And that's just when we're sitting down. Okay. So we will not have a problem generating heat within our habitats. That's not going to be a problem. Our biggest problem is getting rid of the excess heat. Hmm. So one of the things as we move forward that we want yeah, to keep in mind. Think
0: about a cold day and, and, and you had two people making out in the car.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, the car is nice and toasty. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they're... I
0: mean, the windows are... Confused. The windows are foggy,
1: yeah. you know. So, you know, it's a good example to use. Mm-hmm. Your 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 bodies, you're your, your, your generating moisture-filled air. Mm-hmm. You're drawing in oxygen. You're filling yeah. up the car. Yeah, it's a wonder don't we don't suffocate from the yeah. carbon dioxide, you know. But, but in reality, the, the the vehicle has enough openings in it <laughs> that it leaks like a sieve. Yeah. Anybody who's taken a car through a river will know that, how much it leaks.
0: Well, but, yeah, it reminds me of back in the 60s. They said that the, the VW was uh, waterproof.
1: Well, it was watertight.
0: Well, It isn't had, quite watertight,
1: but had, it will flow I had somebody for a while. who
0: told my dad that his, that his BWB, uh was waterproof. So he tried to take in this thing uh, and drove it into the river. And, of course, it never came back up.
1: <laughs> I remember as a kid here in Arizona, uh, when I was a boy, the rainstorms would hit, and the I-17 underpasses, oh, which I go did. into the ground, yeah. would fill up with water. Yeah. And you'd have people in Cadillacs
0: trying to plow
1: through and the water just stops them dead. The, the engine gets flooded out and yeah. boom, boom, boom. They're stuck down in the deepest part of the, the underpass. Water always wins. Yeah. yeah. Water wins. Yeah. Which is why the moon is so dry. <laughs> there no water there. Actually, there is, but we'll get to that.
0: Yeah.
1: The, the Mission Zero looks at all of these things that we've learned about living on Earth. We know that the very first thing that the pilgrims did, the very first thing that the settlers moving west did, the very first thing that people did at Botany Bay in Australia did, hmm. the very first thing that every group of humans does when they settle a new place is they plant a farm. Hmm. They plant a farm, they find what local fauna uh, and flora can deliver to them, uh, and, and they hunt. They, they, but the very first thing that they do is they set down roots. Hmm. So the first thing we've got to do is be able to set down roots. Now, to do that, we have to go back to all the things that NASA's done and some of the private companies, and we need to take advantage of technology as here. Now, keep in mind, I said mission zero needs to step back from technology, and that it's going to do. We're not going to take a tin can habitat. Can't do that. Way too much wasted utility because it can't be expanded. It can't grow.
0: And we're like a dome, you know. Yeah. We we thought we have all the pictures and
1: <laughs> the and, fantasies of the domes over the well, craters. You
0: know, cartoons and, have been depicted oh, yeah. like that. Uh movies are depicted depicted in and shows with sure. the domes. huh. And and you're thinking, how in the world did they get that up there?
1: I don't even want to think yeah. about how they get there, but here's the thing. <laughs> if there's no atmosphere right. to hold your dome down And you've got all of this air pressure inside the dome? Yeah. What's holding the dome down to keep the atmosphere in?
0: Exactly. It Uh, it just uh, goes against every scientific, logical thought.
1: Right. I mean, there are things (laughs) that you do to hold down the dome. You know, you anchor it, you dig into the ground, blah, 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 blah. But here's the thing. a lot of expended energy
0: to keep the dome
1: down. But when we go back in history again, And, and a lot of what Mission Zero does is it looks at history to give us lessons on how to establish our beachhead on the frontier. Yeah. One of the things that, that we as a people do is we live in caves.
0: Yeah, we live in and caves. Apartments I mean, or caves? Houses caves? Apartments,
1: houses—they're
0: they're caves. More no, more so now than ever before.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, people uh, people want windows to be able to see out, but yeah. we want our cave to protect us. From everything else that's out there on yeah. Earth, it tornadoes works. and floods yeah. and, and other people and noises and stuff. Zombie so, apocalypse. Stuff. Zombie apocalypse. There you go. <laughs> um, so, But the thing to remember is, is caves have a lot of value that um, a tin can habitat doesn't. First mm-hmm. and foremost, you dig a cave in the side of a crater wall, you... You can you can dig in thirty feet, seal the front of that cave. You've got a habitat that's already protected from the heat of the sun, yeah. the cold of the of the no atm- the cold of space. The, it's protecting you from the dirt above you, from radiation, from cosmic rays,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and for the most part, it'll hold in most of your atmosphere. Hmm. How many times have we seen mine disasters? And discovered that they're running out of air, well, why are they running out of air? Well, because the dirt holds in what they've got, it doesn't let fresh air in, and it don't let the air that's in there out, so you can't let the carbon dioxide out and get oxygen back in unless you dig a hole to pump it in. Now, you dig a cave on the moon or on Mars, you've got a ready made shelter that solves that 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 satisfies so many conditions of a habitat on on the moon or Mars that solve so many problems. Plus, here's the biggest thing. Once you get that cave dug, once you seal it, you can make it bigger.
0: Oh yeah, I guess you could. Yeah You, you just mean, you, the, walls you try, could be, could, the walls could be made I bigger. Mean, uh, pa, you just extend I it. Yeah I wouldn't go,
1: you know, trying to make it taller.
0: But I would, I would extend the walls. Well, sure. Yeah.
1: You take a, you take, you take three or four people. You mm-hmm. take a pickaxe. You can dig a foot a day
0: mm-hmm.
1: for something that's that's six or seven feet tall. I mean, you can, you can dig okay, think, things.
0: Think about the prison escapes of the past. Yeah. Right? Like they, they dug a little bit every day.
1: Absolutely. To, to get to their freedom. It doesn't take long, and they could literally construct a second habitat without ever going outside,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or a third, or a fourth.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'd be connected.
1: They would be connected.
0: You'd have your uh, community.
1: You could uh-huh. have your community. That community could grow. Yeah. You know, and... Sure, the, how they but, get along. Right. Now, but we have to come back to the science and understand mm-hmm. that if we make a bigger habitat, we've got to fill it with more air.
0: Oh, well, of So course. we have to yeah. have...
1: We've got to remember the math. Yeah. We've got to remember a little bit about the engineering. Yeah. So we've got to add not just air, but we need to add... Biomass into that habitat. And this is where...
0: (laughs) What do you mean by biomass?
1: (laughs) Biomass is more plants, Uh more critters, and eventually more people.
0: Okay. So you're talking about ways to feed the people.
1: Ways to not only feed the people, but you've got to recycle and generate air, and you've got to bring water in. Water is part of biomass. And the
0: waste
1: and you've got to process the waste, mm-hmm. so here's the thing let's let's talk about air for a minute. Humans and plants work together to maintain and recycle an air system,
0: yeah, yeah, okay
1: now, if we get plants in there that also produce food, ooh, cool <laughs> double duty, double duty, two for the price of one. Now take those same plants, or
0: or the plant that actually helps you construct something else.
1: There you go, by bamboo. There you absolutely, and bamboo is a very highly photosynthetic plant. Mm. Plus, it generates it. You can use it, hollow it out for, I think. Yes. So you can grow your plumbing. Yeah. What's up with that? Shades of Gilligan's Island.
0: I know. But now let's
1: let's let's go back so to the other plants. It, right? Let's go back to the other plants. Let's go back to our two for one example. Okay. We've got a plant here that generates the oxygen during its cycle, and this this plant is giving us food. Okay? Mm-hmm. But there's a third function that same plant can do. We can get a three for a year. Plants will filter the water by drawing out elements, uh waste products. If we throw fish in our water system yeah and as they uh, swim around and we feed them from plants right. they will eat the plants and they will defecate and pee in the water and all the kind of things that they do in the water Ew. and that will go through all the plants the plants will filter that water mm-hmm. we've got our three fur.
0: three fur.
1: three fur. you've got plants that provide us air yeah. They provide us food, yeah. and they filter the water so that we can reuse it for the fish. And if we add some ceramic filters and some minor things to kill the last of the bacteria and stuff in the water to purify it, we can have drinking water.
0: Well, this is thinking, don't they? Don't you need to kind of change that out once in a while? Because I mean, the contaminants on on what you're uh, you know filtering through would carry too many contaminants after a certain amount of filtering.
1: That's that's taken care of by the selection of plants that you run. Huh. In other words, some plants, there there are plants, in fact NASA's got a list of these uh, uh, plants that actually will filter out uh, harmful um, uh, air pollution. Huh. There's plants that, plants that can pull um, uh, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, they can pull out some of the chemicals in the air that we have in our homes from our carpets and furniture, those plastic pieces and formaldehyde and all that, that can be filtered out by certain plants. They they pull that out and it gets left in the soil and, and, and the different things like that, or it's left in the root system when the plant dies. Plants can also draw out a lot of the stuff from the water because they draw in Um, their nitrogen and they're drawing in all of these many other chemicals as well as nutrients and stuff into their root systems but also some plants um, become hosts for bacteria that reside in either the soil or the growing medium that also filters out things like other bad bacteria they filter out (laughs) poisons they filter out a lot of stuff that comes in from the waste of the fish and and the chickens and the other things that you have in in this biome. So (laughs) if you construct your aquaponic system in a reasonably balanced way, you can handle most of the problems that you would face otherwise. Hmm. But here's the rub. It's still a semi-artificial system. And so you need people to keep it balanced. This is why I don't believe that many of the hydroponic solutions that are intended to be shipped off to the moon, shipped off to Mars, and landed with robotic automated uh, caretakers are going to work for very long. They'll work for a while. Hmm. But there are going to be things that are going to build up in the system that a robotic system or a remotely run system cannot deal with. And these will accumulate over time in the same way that the problems faced in Biosphere 2 became accumulative issues that they could not overcome. This is the problem with depending so heavily on technology. It just doesn't pan out. But if you pair that technology with humans, you can then develop that further and become a symbiotic relationship, and it can be adjusted far more quickly by a thinking mind on site who can correct for for most of those ahead of time before that accumulation becomes a danger. It's not a perfect solution. Which is
0: why the humans have to go,
1: not... Which is why humans have to go. Even with somebody here on Earth monitoring a situation, yes, you can detect it, but can you? do you have the resources on the site on Mars plus the transmission delay to get to the right robot, to get to the right item, to put the right con- concentration of what it is you're trying to add into that hydroponic mix to solve the problem? And many times, a lot of these little things like this that, that sneak up on us, these aren't things we we anticipated in the lab. They're just not. When you're looking at low gravity, you've got a completely different set of fluid dynamics to work about. Water flows differently in low gravity. And it's not enough just to tip your trough another six times steeper. That's that's not enough. You've yeah. got to look at other options. And this is where the human element comes into play and why I believe that we need humans to go to solve the everyday problems that we will face on the homestead.
0: Well, I just want to remind everybody that, uh, that there's a call number, 714-242-5145. And just a br- brief, quick uh, review of some things that are going on this week in the middle of uh, our conversation here. The Leverkan 39, which is coming up this week, it uh, starts on Thursday with a film festival. And that's free to, and open to the public. And if you go on the org slash lep39, that's L-E-P-39, you will see a lot of information about the film festival as well as the Mystery Dinner Theater. Uh, the film festival starts at 7 p.m. on Thursday, and there's media going to be there uh, interviewing our guests of honors and also, uh, we have a full three, more than three hours of, of actual film to be able to show you. It's the original, uh, mostly Arizona-grown, uh, you know, the smallest short films and short works. So, you know, we definitely want to kind of get people in because we've got the works to show you. We have some really cool stuff to show you. You know, obviously, these, these people are just very creative and and think outside the box. So, you know, maybe we should get those people on the men. But uh, <laughs> I have to think, you know, how can we do how, how can we do all these cool things for a movie on um, very cheaply? So that's just kind of uh, cool stuff you'll be able to see at Leprechaun on Thursday night. And then on Friday night we have Meet the Pros where you'll meet all of our guests of honors and almost and, uh, participants for the weekend. Uh, the Mr. Janet Theater, we're proud to, to include this. It is a uh, inaugural voyage of the orbital cruise ship called Pot of Gold, and there's a three hour cruise pun intended of course uh from Leprechaun at seven p m on last we're starting to serve at six thirty on May eleventh that's this next Saturday coming up. Your dinner with the captain will include your choice of two entrees uh and a vegetarian meal as as uh, we saw, and sites of Earth's orbit. Uh, definitely take a look at that, and you can sign up right on the website at Love 39 uh, So org slash 39 and you can find your Mystery Dinner Theater information there. Be sure to scroll down and see all the, the recent news releases regarding this inaugural uh, voyage. A lot of fun. Also, I was wanted to let you know about the Geek Off competitions. That's going to be throughout the whole weekend. So sign up is on Friday night during Meet the Pros, and uh, with a King or Queen being uh, crowned on Sunday, much like the TBS show uh, King of the Nerds. Be uh, different phases of uh, competition and a team style oriented uh, competitions that they have to you know go through and be able to um fulfill each competition in order to for that group to win at the end. So with that we're going back to uh Don and again the phone number to call is seven one four two four two five one four five or the chat below. This is K Radio. This is Patty Holstrand. Now Don we were talking about getting the food and water these habitats and the the fact that we can expand the habitats um, and using some of the material of plants that we are going to take with us, not only for food, but also for materials for for, uh, constructing these habitats. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But the the overall question here is, why should we go?
1: Ah, (laughs) and that helps me get a segue into the next section that I wanted to talk about tonight, is that The the Mission Zero paradigm isn't just about getting the foothold. The Mission Zero paradigm has a second part that looks at how do we go further. To to recap recap briefly, Mission Zero is a collection of four missions of seven people each who go to construct a habitat, establish a farm, and between the four teams at some point begin Um, with Earth orbit stations. Now right now we've got the ISS and we've got the Shenzhou station which is in the process of being constructed. Uh, Astronauts are up there I think this week, maybe it's next week. Um, But China's building that station and if our moon settlement could begin producing exports of air, food and water To those stations, that's a lot of material, a lot of weight that NASA no longer has to pay to ship up from Earth, which is really expensive.
0: So we're talking about is an economy.
1: An economy. Now, that being said, you ask why we should go. Well, we should go because, first of all, it's frontier. It is a frontier. We are explorers at heart. We are intensely an intensely curious species. We want to know what's over the next hill.
0: Yeah.
1: We want to know what's down that hole I can see over there that that rabbit ran by. <laughs> Is that the rabbit's den? Are there little baby bunnies in there? Ooh, cute little bunnies! <clears throat> Lunch!
0: <laughs> I guess it's a matter of perspective. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, I'm a guy. To me, bunnies are lunch. To you, a girl, oh, they're so cute, you want to pet them, take them home. Okay, fine. Anyway, as a frontier, we have always moved into and moved past the frontier. Mm -hmm. There are many other reasons that people have talked about going. Survival of the species. We need to expand or we risk extinction in our own stuff. Uh
0: Uh-huh.
1: Okay, um, there is just the because it's their thought. There are, are because it's expanded. There, there are a host of reasons people have shared, but in my mind, it's simply just that it's, it's who we are. We press the boundaries in everything that we do, whether it be science, technology, uh, engineering, literature, whatever it is, we push the boundary. We work hard to push outward. That's now, true. Mission Zero is, when I started putting the concept together, Mission Zero was about getting the beachhead. But over the last year and a half, as I've been putting this together, I've been realizing it's not enough to set the beachhead. It's not enough to get an economy going between the moon settlement and the ISS and, say, the Chinese Tiangong uh, station. And soon to follow, hopefully Bigelow will have a station up in in a few – within a decade – that would be awesome to have, yeah. um, but I don't see it happening immediately. But we've got to get a source for air, water, food, and rocket fuel off-planet. We can't keep shipping these, what I call, staples. These necessities cannot keep coming from Earth. No. And, and these not, are the bulk.
0: That's not self-sustaining.
1: Exactly. It, it isn't.
0: Continue to rely on Earth.
1: Right. These things, once they're available, will open the floodgates that will allow us to send people in mass. Well, almost in mass. Um, here's here's a thought to think about. We have the capacity with the Falcon Nine rocket to send seven people up in a Dragon in one launch. Okay. In addition to those seven people, we can send them with some uh, a modicum of supplies we can send them with clothing and food and air that that let them survive for a short period of time. now, the dragon capsule, even the even with the extended trunk on it, isn't enough to give them say six months' worth
0: uh-huh.
1: but it is a stepping stone in that direction now the mission zero paradigm has a second launch. That carries their supplies and two uh, remote-controlled landers that they would take with them on each of the four Mission Zero launches. But I want to talk more about what happens after Mission Zero now, and that is, is that if you take the SpaceX um, cargo fairing that they use, it has dimensions that <clears throat> let's say we've established Mission Zero Beachhead. We've got our four habitats. On the moon we've achieved that and we've got our supply line opening up between the lunar settlement and um, the ISS and they're negotiating with the Chinese to establish those supplies for them as well um, to facilitate those supplies there's a there's a piece that we need to have in place okay. that's our truck
0: Right, some transportation. The,
1: the some way to supplies. transport supplies on a regular schedule back and forth. When you've got, I mean, let's just look at Walmart for a minute, you know, the guy we love to hate, right? Okay. They, they've done things to make um, products cheaper for those of us that want to buy them. They've done that by setting up a network of transportation that allows them to send large quantities of materials to A bulk site and then from that bulk site they distribute to closer in distribution locations we need to take that same idea of a distribution network or a distribution vehicle Mm -hmm. that can take supplies from earth to or from the moon to earth orbit and then bring back raw materials which would be waste used equipment um, used uh, spacecraft the Mm -hmm. progress and the uh dragons and, and a lot of these craft well not dragon, but the, the progress and the and the Soyuz craft, they get burned up in the atmosphere mm-hmm. after they go to the ISS. They get one mission out of those. That's such a waste. Yes. You know. Uh, the ATVs, the the uh the uh chrono thing from Japan, the the, the these craft end up being filled with trash and thrown away. Those would be the currency that would be shipped to the moon for use there to be recycled. The human waste, the food waste, the the moisture that would be captured within all of that material, plus the raw materials of the equipment um, and the ships. So think about this. To get all that stuff to the moon and to get the stuff from the moon down to Earth orbit, we need a workhorse craft, a sailing ship, that can operate as our cargo ship with a hold to go back and forth between Earth orbit and the moon. There is a ship in progress that is being constructed for that purpose. It's, it's basically running through an orbit called a lunar cycler orbit. Uh-huh. Basically, it runs from Earth orbit, shoots out, to, to lunar orbit swings around the moon and then flies back into earth orbit and every time it comes back around they make some minor adjustments um just some minor uh uh thruster adjustments to keep them on track so that they can slingshot back and forth and it becomes this little literally it's it's if anybody remembers the old cyclotron experiment we would do in like grammar school mm-hmm. where you take this this big plate and you start with a marble. And your objective is is you, you manipulate that cha- plate so that, that marble starts rolling around the plate. Now the faster you get that marble going, the farther out on that plate it'll go. And when you get it to just the right combination of speed and angle and all that stuff going, you can keep that marble going almost forever with a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of energy. You don't even barely have to move the plate to keep that marble going that whole place. And that's what a lunar cycler does. It cycles between lunar orbit and Earth orbit. There's just one catch. You still have to expand all of the fuel to get it into that orbit. But once there, you only do it once. Now, once you get it up there and it's going at that, it's running around 25,000 miles an hour. We don't run that fast in Earth orbit. So every ship that wants to connect with that has to get up to that speed in Earth orbit, latch on, take the ride for three to three days to a week, and they jump off at the moon, slow down, and land or stop in orbit. Now. <coughs> If we couple this lunar cycler from Excalibur almas now they've got two modules they're going to be joining together. At least that's the current plan. Mm-hmm. And once they launch it, their idea is to do tourist trips from the Earth orbit to lunar orbit, and then carry people back and forth. It becomes a it becomes an orbital liner. Yeah. I mean, this is this is a this is a cruise ship for crying out loud. And these guys got a great idea.
0: I could make a joke about that, but I won't. Oh yeah. We know who we're not going to have
1: as our first liner. (laughs) But here's the thing. We can facilitate their ability to do their job if we can deliver supplies to that craft, that lunar cycler, from the moon rather than having to to supply that cycler from Earth. All the fuel... water that they'll need to supply the people with to go back and forth can be supplied far less expensively from the moon. <laughs> and any waste that they generate can be dropped at the moon for recycling. Wow. It's a straightforward solution that provides that add on adds on to the economy that would become the orbital community. And once the Tiangong the station develops, where they've got all three of their modules up, all right. and the ISS has got everything there, ISS is scheduled for um, what do they what do they call it? Uh, uh, shutting it down um, in in mid twenty three twenty four, I think. I could be a little off on that. It's plus or minus a year or two, but they're scheduled to deorbit the ISS at that time. Why? Why should we waste all of that habitat space? Yeah. If we take the International Space Station and we add some VASIMIR thrusters, which is part of the plan. They're planning on testing a VASIMIR system up there for thrusters to help the space station maintain its current orbit system. Uh, Supposedly, hopefully within a couple of years we'll see that happen. They can test that. If we take the ISS and with some fully capable Vasimir thrusters increase its orbit and speed, huh. we could then add the next stage of our process. And the next step is that once we've got we've gone through mission zero, mm-hmm. we've now added our cargo cycler between the Earth and the Moon. And it takes a week to go from the Earth to the Moon and another week to go from the Moon back to Earth orbit. What we still lack is a way to get out to Mars. But we've got to have a really big ship or a ship that we can add on to to achieve that. Okay. Now, we don't want to be lifting a huge Mars ship in orbit. And quite honestly, we've already got a structure in orbit now that is big enough to take six people to Mars. And more if we add a few more modules to it, and like some is, bigelow modules.
0: Okay, and what is that? That's a, the
1: International Space Station. If we take the principle, if
0: we're talking about docking it and and getting off of
1: it. We already do that now. There are two cargo craft and at least two other uh, passenger craft currently docked to the ISS almost all the time. And they undock and they come home or burn up or whatever they do. There are actually six docking ports on the ISS. And there's a handful of other ports that additional modules could be docked to. So instead of planning to deorbit, the International Space Station, I propose that we put into its lifespan the the idea that the the ISS could become a Mars cycler. By adding VASIMIR engines to it, the space station could be gradually increased both in speed and its orbit in such a way that doesn't pose a risk to its structure as it reaches its speed and the orbit necessary, it could be sent out of Earth orbit, Mm -hmm. gradually get out to geo-orbit, GSO orbit, then out beyond the moon, once it gets up to speed, and then begin that orbit trajectory out to Mars. If we time it right, if we time it right, We would have the capability by then of having ships already stationed at the moon that would meet this Mars cycler en route to Mars, carrying all the supplies, all the people that we could carry.
0: Well, I guess we definitely know what Noah was doing when he created the ark.
1: (laughs) One last thing I started to talk about earlier was that we have a ship, or we have the capacity to add functionality to something that's already been built, that's about the right size, that handles the right amount of weight, that could take us the next step. If we modified the SpaceX cargo fairing into a pressure container, That pressure container if, could be turned into a sleep ship. But here's the thing. I'm not talking a sleep ship that might go out to Mars and take two years to get there. I'm not talking a sleep ship that would go interstellar. What I'm talking about is something that you could send regular people on who don't need to be trained in the operation of spacecraft. You carry them like passengers in the same way that we do with airlines. But here's the difference. The, the the pressure vessel would be designed in such a way to carry people in volume. You you can put thirty five people in here okay. in a reclining position, surrounded by a thin water envelope
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a kind of like a, a cylindrical water bed, as it were. You strap them in, and if they're at a slight <laughs> angle, okay. The water cylinder cushions cushions them. But the last piece here is you put them to sleep. You give them right. anesthetics or reduces, sedatives reduces, or whatever
0: it is. It,
1: it reduces the oxygen. It reduces the oxygen use. It reduces any food. They 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 Their IV, when they get in,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they'd slide in. They'd simply go to sleep. They'd stay asleep until they get to their projected destination. We could send. With the current infrastructure, if that fairing was used as the foundation to modify into a pressure vessel, could carry 35 people into orbit on the existing Falcon 9 ship. I believe, if my calculations are close. Now, hmm. now you definitely have a good plan here as far as SpaceX has been able to deliver a seven-person capsule, okay. which carries more people than any other capsule in development. X-Core carries two. Okay. okay. The other space plane, uh, Virgin Galactic, carries six total. Okay. The new Orion will carry seven. But here's the bugger. When SpaceX built that fairing design for the cargo, they created a, a shape that lends itself to passenger travel, and if we put them, if we put them to sleep, that gives us a way to send 35 people at a pop on a craft that could achieve orbit, and then from orbit have a booster attached to it that could then send it up to the lunar cycler, and those 35 people could be carried all the way to lunar orbit, where they could be awakened and become settlers for the moon, or awakened for a week-long orientation that could then send them back up to another craft of similar design that would dock with the Mars Cycler, and they would be 35 people being sent out to the Mars Settlement.
0: Right. So it's a you know, you're going one place, and then that way you can hop to the next place. Exactly. And yeah.
1: this gives us a way that even if, if you're looking at um, this, we could have, with with the mission zero paradigm that I've laid out so far in the book that's coming out soon, and we incorporate the passenger module on the SpaceX Falcon 9, it is conceivable that within five years we could have 1,000 people living on the moon. Mm-hmm. And with five years after that, we could have a thousand people living on Mars.
0: I know there's been a few who have asked you, uh, what about crime on the moon? what you know what do we do about that?
1: There are a host of legal issues. Uh, crime is just one of them. Um, there are issues about ownership that are unresolved. There are issues about um just general behavior in the settlement. And these are things that the Mission Zero Paradigm and the plan that follows, the follow-on plan, suggests we leave it up to the settlers. Let them establish the rules of behavior in their towns. And yeah. for the most part, that was the policy followed throughout the America yeah. West. Yeah. It was the policy that was, generally speaking, in Australia. It was also the policy that, generally speaking, was followed in the early settlements in this country. As long as Europe got their shipments, as long as the U.S. didn't have to deal with uh, stuff coming back to them that they didn't want, they left the settlers alone. And I think for the first 50 to 100 years of the lunar and Mars settlements and, and the Jupiter and Saturn moons beyond and the asteroids, Leave well enough alone. These people are struggling enough. They don't need government involvement, especially the governments we have today. So just to kind of recap, the, 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 the vision I'm painting here is Mission Zero that puts frontier people, settlers, in a set of four missions of seven people each to establish the beachhead on the moon first. During this time, the Almas, the Excalibur Almas comes into play, Hopefully, if they meet their timetable, they'll have that lunar cycler coming just about the right time to start bringing supplies back and forth between lunar orbit and Earth orbit.
0: Yeah, it's
1: if Absolutely. everything works out in time exactly. time. exactly. Now, with the lunar cycler in place, the lunar settlement producing exports for the ISS and the Chinese station, we now have an economy that can that, that trades. Once we have that, SpaceX can then start um, building up the passenger service using a model. We can send 35 people at a time just to begin with. Mm -hmm. Later on, they'll come up with something bigger. But those 35 people at first on sleep ships that go all the way to lunar orbit. In the meantime, we get get either uh, some sort of ion propulsion that allows us to begin accelerating the ISS and turn that, into our projected Mars cycler on a schedule that puts it ready for the first 35 people to go after our four missions have gone to Mars to establish the beachhead there. This is the plan that I think makes a lot of sense. And it's a wheel of a lot. Sometimes we'll have to get into the... To the financials on this, and the legals. There are all sorts of legal issues to think about.
0: Oh well, there's always uh, you know a lot to think about when it comes to you know settling in space. It, it, again, it's it's very exciting. It's going to be a lot of work, that's uh, you know, well worth it for the future of mankind.
1: Oh hell, I just want a neat backyard. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Don wants wants to be in one of the
1: uh, one of these
0: flights to the moon, don't you?
1: I hope to be on the third mission zero trip to the moon. Why third? Because <coughs> if if I'm part of setting this all up, I'm going to be busy until then. Yeah. But by the third time, third trip, I want to be on that trip and and
0: third time's a charm
1: time's a charm. But I'd also like, I'm thinking I might invite, uh I mean, in my fantasy, I'm inviting Buzz Aldrin to come along and and Elon Musk to come along and join me, because then we're going to be on the first crew that heads to Mars, and Elon Musk and Buzz Aldrin, that would be awesome.
0: <laughs> Riding to
1: Mars together. Three old guys. Of course, we get sick of each other after six months.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> But make sure you got the realm. There you go. <laughs> so, this is Patty Holstrand and this is Wad Radio. And we're at the tail end of our show today. And just wanted to let you know that uh, we will be on tomorrow, uh, 530, with uh, some pre-convention uh, participants who are going to Leprechaun. Uh, and just wanted to, you know, be able to give uh Two or three of them a chance to introduce themselves to the general public and you know get the word out about their works. These are authors uh we're probably doing the same thing uh on uh, Thursday for the artists, so definitely come on in and uh you know take give us a listen and give us some calls since I know you guys are out there, but you need to actually call sometimes and uh ask some questions. That are, you know, foremost in your mind. Heaven knows that uh, Don definitely gives you guys some things to think about. So <gasps> either he blew your mind already or, or you're just not uh, into uh, having any opinion on this matter. No, this, is, this is your future. So you should have an opinion. So with that, it's getting almost 3, 730 in Arizona time. And this is Monday. And this is Game Radio, this is Patty Owlstrand signing out.